This is the 343 Podcast. I'm your host, John Pronich. Welcome to the show. Without being intimately involved, it's hard for anyone to understand the politics or how the decision-making in the U.S. soccer boardroom impacts the bigger picture. Some of these topics can be exhausting to discuss, but that did not prevent Hope Solo from having a conversation with me about some of the most important issues we are facing in American soccer. Now, as coaches and players and parents and fans of American soccer, we are often so zoomed in on our own environments that we fail to realize the problems we experience are systemic. And in U.S. soccer's case, they are orchestrated. Yes, you heard that correctly. American soccer is fractured by design. With nearly two decades of experience in areas such as blocking merit-based opportunities, allowing a conflict-riddled marketing company to dictate the direction of the sport in America, and refusing to pay or treat women's national team members equally, the U.S. soccer regime currently in power could write a how-to playbook on disenfranchisement. Decisions continue to be consciously made at the executive level that benefit just a small group of people while directly and negatively impacting every touch point in American soccer from grassroots to the pros. This is an ugly truth that is misunderstood and misrepresented by members of the mainstream soccer media who have little to no firsthand experience in the sport themselves. So when someone like Hope Solo, an Olympic gold medalist, World Cup champion, someone with 202 caps for the national team, when someone like that decides to speak up, it's probably wise that we listen. Not judge, not argue, not attack, just listen. And if you do, you are going to hear Hope say that her fight, while rooted in the mistreatment she and her teammates received as members of the U.S. Women's National Team is one that will benefit American soccer and society as a whole. So in this interview, you are going to hear Hope give a message to her former teammates and current U.S. Women's National Team players. You'll also hear her give some insight about her relationship with Sunil Galati and Dan Flynn. And she is going to give a in-depth explanation as to why this fight for equality is good for everyone, especially women's soccer. Now, Hope and I also spoke privately about the strong bonds that she has formed with other former national team members who have experienced the mental, physical, and economic impacts of U.S. soccer's crippling policies and procedures. One of the people she spoke very, very highly of is Eric Winalda, who is a change agent himself. And together, Hope, Eric, and so many others are aiming to spark real change in American soccer. And to be completely honest and transparent, I am honored that I can help them share their experiences in U.S. soccer and to tell a different side of the story that is so often neglected. In the write-up for this podcast, you can find links to some of the work that Hope is doing these days. She has partnered with Tudela FC, 
in all girls club in Los Angeles that is tackling pay to play and leveling the playing field for young female athletes. And hope has also filed a federal lawsuit after other attempts to resolve certain issues have been ignored and have sat idle for years. So you can find links to those plus more by visiting 343coaching.com. And while you are there, you can learn more about how you can help support and fund this podcast. And I'm talking specifically about the 343 coaching education programs that we offer on 343coaching.com. So if you are a soccer coach and you want to learn from one of the best soccer coaches in the United States with a proven track record of success, this program is exactly what you are looking for. Thousands of coaches, including myself, have already gone through these programs and have found massive success themselves. So if you're interested in learning more about that, you can visit 343coaching.com. Okay, enough with this intro. I am super pumped to share this episode with you. So I hope that you enjoy my conversation with American soccer legend, Hope Solo. So I'm going to ask the question that I usually end interviews with. I'm going to ask it first. Okay. And I feel like that'll kind of dictate what we talk about next. So, uh, you can answer it however you want, uh, whatever comes to mind. Yeah. (laughs) Um, but the question I like to ask people is, is what do people need to know? And you have a very interesting perspective now of, you know, being a, a female player that's gone through times of, you know, having no league to play in having you know a league to play in having no league to play in again uh going through national national team um and then you know a presidential campaign so there's a lot of different avenues that you can kind of explore with with a with a question like that so what do people need to know people need to know including my former teammates and current players on the u.s women's national team They need to know or they need to remember that everything we get in life that is meaningful, we must fight for. And when you look throughout history, power is not given, it is taken. And we have a fundamental right in America to be treated equally and to be paid equally. However, for 60 some odd years, that has not happened for women. So in order to to make sure that we have equality for the future generations. We cannot sit back and accept status quo. We cannot accept CBAs that still aren't equal, even though they are better. That still is not conducive to federal law. So everything in life, if we wanna make society better, if we wanna make football better, if we want to give more opportunity for young boys and young girls, we must stand strong, not be intimidated, not operate under fear, and we must fight. And that is why we live in America, and that is why we live in a beautiful country where we always have progress. You mentioned things like not operate out of fear and like stand strong. And I feel like that hints at, you know, there's, you know, 
people that are trying to intimidate or people that are trying to use fear as a tactic. Is, is that fair to say? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, when you're going up against your own employer, it is very difficult. And, and I had fear myself to, to stand strong and say the way we are being treated as women athletes, as, as the most popular team in America, it is not, is not right. It's not right according to federal law and is not ethically right. And that, that didn't create the best relationship between myself and people like Sunil Galati and Dan Flynn. However, I, I would say that we had a, a healthy relationship until the end of my career, but it was because we were worthy adversaries. It wasn't because um, I bent when he, told, when he told me to bend. It wasn't because he could control me. It's because he respected me, and he respected me because of my, my strength, um, my desire to be the best in the goal, as well as my desire to make sure our national team had the best fields, the best trainers, the best doctors moving forward. And it wasn't easy. I, I knew that my days were numbered towards the, <laughs> towards the end of my playing days. I knew that I was a thorn in their side, and I knew we couldn't continue to bump heads forever. At what point did you realize, or at what point did you decide that you know things were not right? And at what point did you decide, like, I'm going to try to do something about this? I come from a, fa a, <laughs> a family with very strong women. Um, my grandmother, my mother, um, I learned a lot from them. Uh, they never had the easy road. Uh, beautiful, strong women. And my father, uh, my grandfather, were very supportive of these strong women, as well as my husband now. I never would have married, um, never thought I would marry a what maybe outsiders would, would think as a typical NFL player who thinks he's better than me because he made millions in his sport. He truly, my husband Jeremy, truly supported and still supports women's athletics and women's rights and equal rights. And we need that in our society. We need strong men who mm -hmm. are not intimidated by strong women. We need strong women men standing up for the same causes because at the end of the day it makes our world a better place it's not just to benefit women it's to benefit every work environment based off of merit we should be a merit-based society i agree with uh, that so so you know i i've had wonderful people to look up to um i lost my train of thought what was the question <laughs> when, I'm sorry. when when did you realize that things were not right or when did you realize things were messed up or so as I was saying, thank you for reminding me, um, <laughs> I, had, I had these wonderful role models. So early on when I made the national team, like anybody else, I think I was young and naive. When I went to college at the University of Washington, I was young and naive. I was from a small town, very rural town, and I went to the University of Washington. I remember my mom dropped me off at college, and, and we were moving into my dorm, and we, we got out of the truck, and... I put a, a small little TV down, the same TV I watched the 1999 Women's World Cup on. It was <laughs> almost black and white, but it was, it was tiny with the little antennas. And I left it right there on the curb, ran into my dorm room, dropped off a box, came back out, and I saw a homeless man walking off with my TV. And I was like, oh my gosh, I live in a city now. You can't just leave things on the street. 
And I remember it was just a wake up call to me that I need to take care of myself now. I don't have my parents to look after me. I'm not in this small town. And I realized at that point in time, at 17 years old, I am really naive to perhaps um, in comparison to a kid who grew up in the city. Um, or maybe you're just naive at 17 years old, but I felt even more naive than some of my fellow teammates. Um, so when I, when I actually made the, uh, the national team, was uh, I was in camp in 1999, shortly after the women won the 1999 World Cup. And I was still naive. I went in. I wasn't nervous because I, I was a young kid with confidence and, and I believed in my training. I didn't really know who these players were. Even though I watched the 1999 Women's World Cup, I didn't really admire these women. I, I, I wasn't watching soccer every weekend. There weren't a ton of games on television. I watched basketball with my brother. I watched football with my dad. I watched boxing, but I didn't really watch women's sports. We didn't really have the opportunity to because it was on television all the time. So I wasn't intimidated by these women like Mia Hamm or Brianna Scurry. I, was, I, I just was a 17-year-old kid going into national team camp in 1999 after they won the World Cup, and I trained my butt off because I wanted to be the best because I was a really, really competitive person and athlete. And then, once again, I, I go back to me being naive. All of a sudden, I realize, oh my gosh, this team is loved. We have stalkers. We have people <laughs> pounding on the bus windows. We have security guards in our hotel. We have thousands of fans at the game uh, chanting and cheering and wanting autographs. And I realized, oh my gosh, this is a big deal. And that's actually when my play actually kind of went down. So they always say, rookie season, it's not that bad. A lot of, you know, oh, he's a rookie. She's a rookie. It's mm -hmm. just a rookie season. Rookies often play well because they don't realize the pressure. So it wasn't until, you know, probably the next, the next year with the U.S. team where I realized, oh, wow, that's Mia Hamm. She's doing shampoo commercials, and, <laughs> and she's, she's a big deal, and I got intimidated. But then I realized this team is a huge deal, and they are the pride of the country at that point in time, and there's a lot of money behind them, and there's a lot of endorsements and a lot of sponsorships and a huge fan base, and all of our friendlies are after we're on television. I realize this team's a big deal. So then why are we sitting in middle seats, in economy, in the back of the plane? I realized the, the, uh, the difference between the men's and the women's team at a young age. Although I was naive at 17, at 18 year, years old, I realized something's not right. They put the, the U.S. Soccer Federation puts their pride and joy into this women's team, yet they're staying in two-star hotels. People are worried about bed bugs. Half the time there's security, half the time, half the time there's not, and we have more fans than the men's team. So I, I realized early on that there were a lot of inequalities. And going back to being naive, I asked these questions. I kept saying, why don't we get to fly in economy plus? Why are we sitting in middle seats? Why are we playing on high school fields for friendly, for national team games? And I started asking all of these questions and people would be like, oh, just, just stop. And I remember one of my first experiences with a CBA negotiation, I kept saying, well, why don't we just demand that we get paid the same as the men? Why don't we just have the same contract? We have the same employer. We have the same jobs. You know, we're ranked higher than them. We play more games than them. And I just kept 
getting thrown to the side and just being like, I hope that's not going to happen, so let's just figure something else out. And I didn't understand it. I didn't realize it because growing up with women like my mom and my grandmother, I expected to be treated the same. And I guess I was naive to real world problems. And U.S. soccer taught me the real world problems of injustice as well as inequality. And that's continued all the way until this day. And we're going to, I mean, I'm going to fast forward over, you know, a, a marvelous playing career. But I feel like if people need to, you know, figure out anything about what you've done actually on the field, they can, you know, all that's available. It's readily available if they want to look it up. But um, but if you fast forward through through your entire career, nothing really changed uh, as far as, you know, uh, equality, um, you mentioned, you know, the CBAs are a little bit different, but there's still such a huge gap in, in, in there. So, you know, you fast forward to last year and you become very vocal. And I'm curious, you've mentioned a couple of times, like you went into the national team at 17, 18 years old, being, you described it as naive. Would you describe going into the presidential election similarly, or did you go in armed with a lot more knowledge? I knew exactly what I was, I was getting into with, uh, with the run for presidency. Um, I knew that the chances of winning were next to none, not just for me, but for all of the change candidates. Um, I knew that without a doubt that the establishment would, would find a way to make sure their candidates were on top. Um, U.S. soccer has a lot of reach, has a lot of power, and has a lot of money. And it would be difficult for any fellow candidate to to upstage them at any event. Um, yeah, I knew what I was getting into, but I, I also knew that my voice was important and that these issues had to be addressed. And what better way to address these issues than in front of all of the voting delegates, in front of all of the people who are responsible for youth soccer in America, in front of the adult associations, in front of the Federation themselves. I was scared, but I knew that I had to do it because somebody had to use their voice to, to get these issues out there. It's so easy to cover them up. It's so easy for US soccer to use their relationship with ESPN, to use their relationship with, with Fox Soccer and tell their side of the stories. And, and it's really difficult for to tell the truth of what's really going on within the Federation. Because one, people don't want to ru ruin that relationship that they have with US soccer. They want to be allowed into the locker rooms. They want to be on the sidelines during games. They want to have the first access to interviews. So you're up against the media sometimes, which, which is very difficult. But you have to realize there's a lot of people in the media as well who, who want to do the work to understand what's really going on. And I applaud those people in the media, but it takes more work on their part and it doesn't necessarily mean more pay on their part. <laughs> and it means reading really boring documents, attorney documents and legal jargon. But it, it, it's, it's what's good for the game, it's what's good for society, but I understand that a lot of journalists, they have one project, they have a short amount of time to do it and it's really hard to read document after document to understand what's really going on. What I think a lot of people don't give you credit for is, is and forgive me if I describe this terribly, but how you kind of hijacked their stage 
in a way. It's like if you wanted to bring attention to these issues and you did this from the office in Los Angeles, California, how big is that megaphone, right? But if you do it on their stage in front of their people and their fans and, and their members like you did, I don't think uh, people give you enough credit for, for how that was actually handled and how kind of beautifully orchestrated that really was. I took it very seriously. I Anything that, that I commit to doing, I'm all in. And I was all in during this, this presidential campaign. I, um, I had a great team of people. We, this wasn't some publicity stint that, that the jerk from Portland tried to say. Uh, not even worth saying his name. Um, it wasn't about that. It, it was truly about trying to make a difference. And I had a little bit of hope that with the six change candidates, we could find a way to come out on top. I had to hold on to hope. And I had good relationships with all of the candidates, um, including Carlos perhaps not Kathy Carter. Um, I think it was really hard that I went, I went extremely brutally honest against another female candidate. Um, because I say this time and time again, I said this to the, uh, uh, the commissioner of the NWSL, Amanda Duffy. I said to her, it's not about supporting other women because we as women often hold ourselves back. If we don't, put ourselves out there, if we don't take risk, and if we don't stand strong together, then we are weakening our fight. So don't tell me to support another woman just because of her gender. I believe in merit, I believe in skill, I believe in intelligence, I believe in hard work, I believe in educating yourself, and I will support you, man or woman. And what I've seen time and time again is I've seen women fold due to fear and because it's the easier route. And that's why U.S. soccer puts people like Amanda Duffy in place. That's why U.S. soccer puts people like uh, Lisa Levine, the head counsel for the NWSL. It's not because they really want to push women's soccer forward in America. It's because they will do what they need to do to make U.S. soccer happy. And that's not helping women. So for somebody to tell me I have to support all women, I will support the women who take a stand and who really are in it for selfless reasons. So when I ran for presidency, it's one of the hardest things I've ever done, but I took it very seriously. I had a team of people working day and night. I learned a lot. I educated myself. I read documents. I read the issues and the problems in each state across the country. I made millions of calls. I was exhausted. I, I, I did my best to bring the six of us together because I, I knew at the end of the day that all of us would have to give up our votes in order for one of us to overthrow Kathy Carter or Carlos Cordero. It had to happen. And I did my best to bring all of us together. I gained a great amount of respect for so many of those candidates, candidates I had never met before. I earned so much respect for Paul Caligiri, for instance. Um, and I saw people Take a stand, uh, even with the Athletes Council, you know, <laughs> Paul Calgary went in there and he said, he said what he needed to do to the Athletes Council. He, he said what they needed to hear, didn't make a difference, but he did it and it took courage. And I was inspired by him throughout the campaign. I was proud to see it. 
Uh, to this day, I have a great amount of respect for him. I call him my friend. Um, but there were so many different moments throughout the campaign where you saw what people were, were truly made of. And throughout that campaign, I just wanted to do what I could, play my part in, in hopefully bringing change to our sport, which is greatly needed. And I went on stage. I, uh, I was a little bit nervous for my speech. I wasn't sure what direction I wanted to take. I knew I had to stay true to myself. I knew I had to be honest. I wasn't playing the political game at all. And I went on stage and I have the acting president, Sunil Gulati, to my right. I have Dan Flynn to my left, the two people who just fired me. And I go on stage at the podium. They're literally inches beside me. I mean, they squeeze the chairs right beside the podium <laughs> to intimidate you, I think. And I got up there, and, and I called out Carlos Cordero for being a board member and a vice president for that long and, and acting like he's a change maker when he never really spoke up in his time as vice president. And I called him out, and I was honest about it, and I called out Kathy Carter and was honest about it. And at the end of my speech, I felt Sunil Gulati and Dan Flynn glaring at me, burning holes through me. <laughs> and all of the voting delegates stood up and I was the only one with a standing ovation. And it's because they saw the honesty and they saw the passion and they saw the realness and it wasn't a, a publicity stunt. I was up there nervous, scared, but knowing I had to do this. I got off the stage and Carlos Cordero was the last speaker and he gave me a huge hug, a huge hug. And I guess that's part of politics. You know, you don't take things <laughs> personal, I guess. Uh, but, but I'm proud of, of what we did. I'm proud of what our team did. And to this day, I have made great relationships with, with many of the, the delegates from the state associations, many of the presidents from the state associations. And I don't know if people didn't take me seriously before. I don't know if people just thought I was hot off the cuff and, you know, people use the word outspoken as if it's a bad thing, but people, people would say I was, um, what would they say? I wasn't, I was rough around the edges and, and not polished and not good for politics. And at the end of it, people gained so much respect for me. And that just goes to show you cannot make these snap judgments just because I'm an asshole on the field. Just because I'm intense on the field, that doesn't mean it translates to what I'm like off the field. And, and I think for the first time people actually saw that. And those relationships now, I think, can become, you know, the most important thing that, that maybe you, you made or did uh, over the course of that presidential election. Because just, just because you didn't win that election doesn't mean that, you know, it's game over. So you've been, you've been very, very active since then. And I want to give you a chance to maybe talk a little bit about, you know, what you've been up to and, and what the future <laughs> might, might have in store. Oh, man. Um, too many lawsuits, I'll tell you that much. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think some of my closest friends are attorneys right now. Uh, all jokes aside, I'm, I'm really proud of what we have done. We have... We have, we have tried to hold U.S. soccer accountable to the Ted Stevens Act, which is, as a nonprofit and as a national governing body, under the Olympic Committee, it's their obligation to 
support all athletes and all soccer players in America. And that means not just the MLS, not just the NWSL, not just the men's and women's national teams, but that also means the adult league. That also means youth soccer in America. It means the Paralympic teams. It means the U.S. deaf teams. It means all of soccer, all of amateur soccer in America. But U.S. soccer focuses on the MLS and the national teams. And that goes against the Ted Stevens Act, and it goes against the United States Olympic Committee. And it's a national governing body who, as you all know, they sit on $70 million in surplus funds. That needs to be trickled back down to youth soccer in America. We wonder why the men's team obviously didn't qualify, but when you alienate so many communities in America from playing our beautiful game, you are not going to get the best athletes to play soccer. We have to change the system. And at one point in time throughout the election, I felt like I was, I was up against something impossible. And throughout the last year, I realized a lot of people, a lot of people with money, a lot of uh, people throughout the state associations, they want change. Nobody knows how to go about doing it. So we've come together and we've created this incredible growing community, which I call the resistance fighters. <laughs> and it's growing and, and we're actually making change very slowly. But you see, I, I've partnered with this, this local youth girls club team here in LA, Tudela FC, who are doing things the right way. They're not doing things the way U.S. soccer wants them to do it. They're not you know, having kids travel five hours to play for the developmental academies. They are not charging kids thousands of dollars every year. Their coaches speak Spanish. They are inclusive, not exclusive. And they send out their coaches to, to find players outside of, outside of L.A. It's not just in the richest part of the communities. It's not just where the MLS teams are. And I was inspired by this team, so... I went out to a couple of their training sessions. I had no idea when I saw a picture of their team that soccer in America could be so diverse. And this is what soccer in America should look like. And it, it, it made me emotional and I realized if they can do it, why can't other club teams do it? So I'm learning from them um, and, and they're changing the way things are done. And, and it's, it's starting to extend beyond Los Angeles and other communities are doing it now. And it's not what U.S. soccer wants because U.S. soccer wants the youth of America to put money back into their pockets to add to the $70 million in surplus funds. It's a backwards pyramid. Instead of U.S. soccer being at the top of, of the pyramid, trickling money down to everybody, it's the youth of America paying thousands of dollars back into the pockets of U.S. soccer. It's backwards and it doesn't have to be that way forever, but we have to continue to educate people and we have to continue to have a, our resistance fighters fight for change. <laughs> That's true. Uh, I like the, I like resistance fighters and I also like the way that you described it as a uh, upside down pyramid. Nobody to my knowledge has really described that, uh, in that way you know, in regards to soccer. And I think that paints a pretty accurate picture of the landscape right now. Um, where, where can people find out more about, you know, the lawsuits that you're in that what the, the work that you're doing, I want to, I want to describe it like that because it's, it's work, it's good work. It's important things that, that you're still doing. So where can people find out 
about that and follow the the most current events that, that you're going to be up to. Of course. I only spoke about one last lawsuit. I would like to speak um, about a very, very important filing we just made, in fact, on Friday. Um, as most of the public knows, me and five, four of my teammates filed a claim with the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission shortly after the 2015 Women's World Cup, claiming that U.S. soccer was in breach of federal law, the Equal Pay Act, as well as Title VII. The EEOC found evidence, and they were about to make a ruling early on in, in 2016, finding evidence that they were in, in breach of federal law, and it got stalled. The case got stalled, and now it's been close to three years, where our government agency, the EEOC, has a historic case a group of very successful women athletes, and they decided to drag their feet and not make a ruling. I no longer could wait, and I decided to take matter into my own hands, and I filed a federal lawsuit in federal court for the Equal Pay Act in Title VII. It's the first time any athlete's ever done it to their employer, and it's a historic case, and we'll be moving forward. So there's, there's two major lawsuits. If we can win on the Equal Pay Act in Title VII, it will change the landscape of all sports in America as well as for all women here in America. Uh, it's it's going gonna, it's gonna to change things globally. Of course. It's, it it's going to be a big game changer. Just bringing attention to it, just you know, the filing itself is going to be a game changer. Absolutely. Um, so I'm going to make sure that I link to that and make sure I share every, every outlet that, that you're on right now. People can find that in the write-up portion of, of this podcast. I feel like we could talk for like four more hours, yeah. <laughs> but I'm, you have an important practice to get to because you are actually going to go work with your club. My ladies at Tudela <laughs> FC. That is true. That's right. I'm actually going to head over there with you too. Oh, great. I'm that go check it great. out. Well, so, thanks for having me on. It's it's uh, you know sometimes I step away from media and journalism, the soccer world, um, but I know there's a lot of great people out there trying to do good things. So I appreciate you having me on today and. You know, sometimes I, I get a little shy and I don't, I don't want to do media, but, you know, I'll do it for the good folks. Well, I appreciate that, too. Of course. Thank you. Of course. Thank you for listening to another episode of the 343 Podcast. And a big, huge thank you to Hope Solo for coming on the show and for sharing her stories and her experiences and for continuing to fight on American soccer's behalf. I think that's the most important part. If you would like to find links to more about Hope Solo and the work that she's doing with Tudela FC in Los Angeles and the filings that have gone forth, you can find all of that at 343coaching.com. And that is also where you can find more information about our online coaching programs, programs that I have gone through myself and thousands of other coaches have gone through and have learned from one of the best coaches in the United States with a proven track record on the field. And before I let you go, here is a quick message from a name that you might be familiar with that has gone through our online courses as well. His name's Tom Beyer, so here's Tom talking about his experience. And I can tell you, after someone who's done a lot of coaches' education, both as a student and as an instructor, 
that you will learn more by watching one or two of their videos that you might learn on any full-time course. Because the, the one thing that I like about what they're presenting is, again, it's simplicity, man. It's very simple. It's not a lot of, you know, complicated words. It makes sense. And it goes right directly to the heart of, of, of the game on, on, on how, to, how to develop, um, not just, you know, individual players, but develop teams as well. So once again, you can find all of that information at 343coaching.com. All right. Thank you for listening. And we will catch you guys next time here on the 343 Podcast.